the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to the Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotograph's editor, Eno Saris. And today we'll be discussing the future dimming in New York, the future brightening in Seattle, and whether a pair of veterans are at the end of the line. And today we have a pretty obvious most interesting player alive today. Actually, it's not so obvious, because the number one search for player, as always, a man who refuses to get <clears throat> off that top pedestal, Miguel Cabrera. But the number two most searched for is Matt Harvey for pretty clear reasons. And, you know, as a Mets fan, is it time for Mets fans to give up on life? Uh, uh, it might be. I mean, I don't understand why we can't have nice things. It's it's not fair. Oh, tissues? <laughs> I hate you. Uh, well, hey, I mean, I grew up in a Mets family, and I spoke to my dad last night, and I'm like, Dad, so did you hear about Matt Harvey? Well, you know, he didn't really pitch that well his last game. I'm like, I guess you haven't heard about Matt Harvey. And, you know, so I told him the news, and he was not a happy man. I mean, he's not like a hardcore fan or anything. He's more of a casual fan, but obviously it's for any fan of the Mets and, and even just a baseball fan, the – the prospect of him missing all of 2014 to Tommy John surgery is just not good for baseball. Yeah, I think that he should get the surgery, though. I mean, yeah, they, there's this example of uh, of Wainwright, I guess. I never, I didn't know that he actually uh, rehabbed the the uh, UCL partial tear that he had instead of actually getting the surgery. But I think that he eventually got the surgery anyway. Um, you just. You know, I don't know how many years later, but he got it. He got it eventually anyway, and in most of the other cases, um, they get the surgery. So I, I would just say get the surgery done. You know, and at least you've got two, three, four years before you have another worst case scenario. So, um, I it's sad, and uh, you know, it was it was uh, it was a good good errand for Jeff Zimmerman to try and go back and look for uh, warning signs, but there were very few in this case. I mean. Uh, his velocity went down a little bit, but it was you know, it was up before that, so it was you know flat for the season. Um, his release points were about the same. There's a tiny bit of risk, perhaps, with uh, guys who pitch over 95, but that was a really small sample. So I mean, it's a, Zimmerman's piece up today about whether or not we could have seen Harvey coming is a good piece, and it's a good idea to, to go look into it. But by all by all accounts, we couldn't have known it was coming. Yeah, and you did mention that you would probably advise Harvey going to, under the knife as opposed to rest and rehab. And yeah, of course, I definitely agree with that because the rest and rehab route usually doesn't end up working. And then they end up saying, screw it, I'm just going to have a surgery. So it makes sense to just have the surgery to begin with rather than uh, experimenting and, and trying that rest and rehab uh, route. And it's really amazing reading that Zimmerman piece because you read all of the quotes about the smooth and, and good mechanics and everything. And it, what it basically suggests to me is that we still have no clue what causes these injuries. Yeah. I mean, I guess the media in New York is making a big deal about the fact that he reported some, some sort of a forearm soreness, but 
that is a really nebulous term. I mean, there's really no way to know if that's, you know, oh, you know, I woke up this morning and, you know, I noticed that I have a forearm or, you know, I noticed that I have a forearm. You know, like I noticed like that there was something there or if it was like actual pain. And if it's just like noticing a muscle, like, you know, the kind of soreness you get after you work out hard, um, then I doubt that um, that isn't that that's a rare thing. I mean, I, I bet, you know, if, if you think about working out hard and then you think about what you feel like the next day, I feel like probably pitchers feel like that a lot. You know, because it's like a hard workout and of course they're going to be a little bit sore in, in certain spots, but, you know, um, and sore and tight, you know, that's the kind of words he was using. Those don't, those, those you know, if they stop people on all, every time they, they feel something like that, then we wouldn't have pitchers. So um, I, I think that it's just something that, um, you know, is going to happen. You know, we talk about things not being natural. It's natural because we do it. We can do it. So it's not unnatural. It's not like... Um, from you know aliens or something pitching you know is is a, a thing we can do with our bodies but it doesn't mean that we know the exact correct mechanics yet you know the crazy thing about Harvey is that usually we throw up the red flags when we see a pitcher suddenly struggling with struggling with control like Matt Moore for example earlier in the season and we wonder uh-oh is he injured is his elbow barking and sure enough Matt Moore that is exactly what was going on but that wasn't the case for Matt Harvey. He only walked two batters in the entire month of August, so his control was fine. Statistically, he showed absolutely no evidence of a tearing UCL. I mean, is this the type of thing? I, I don't even know how it happened. I mean, did you read anything about when this may have happened? Did, did he, like, is it something that suddenly happens on one pitch, or does it slowly tear throughout the season until it gets to the point where he really feels it and he just can't go any further and he has to have the surgery? And if so, if he's been uh, pitching as it's tearing, how the heck does he perform like the best pitcher in baseball? Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, in Ben Lindbergh's piece on, on BP, there was a, a little bit about, uh, uh, he, he was suffering a little bit from a decreased vertical uh, movement on some of his pitches. So that's a you know, a tiny bit of a red flag, perhaps. Um, also, it is the kind of thing that uh, is gradual. Um, so if he had been, you know, re reporting some sort of soreness, you know, I guess it just turned out to be worse than they thought. You know, it's just, you know, he thought it was, you know, maybe routine type soreness, late season soreness or something. But then they figured out that, uh oh, that was actually the beginning of the tear. Um, but obviously something went wrong in the Detroit start. Because he said that after that game he felt pain, and that's when they, you know, decided to check it out with machines and so on. Um, but uh, I wonder if MRIs were cheaper, would they have gotten him an MRI the minute he said he was sore? Uh, that's an interesting thought. Um, and uh, there are plenty of people out there that have crazy different ways to throw the baseball. There's this, there's a piece on Josh, uh, I think it's Josh Outman, you know, Josh like, Outman on uh, Hardball Times. Yeah, Outman throws the ball. Outman wanted to throw the ball like from above his head. It's the craziest motion I've ever seen. His father thinks that you know keeps him from being hurt. Uh, Tim Lincecum's father has you know crazy mechanical ideas. So there are crazy mechanical ideas out there, and yet we see pitchers mostly throw the same way. So I, I'm wondering if there is uh, some advancement to be made in the in the field of uh, of delivery mechanics and biomechanics that there's not you know, a better way to throw the ball. But uh, the way they're throwing the ball now, this is going to happen.
Yeah, I think there definitely is progress to be made. And, and the issue is, is that everybody has their own ideas of what good mechanics are. And then when they say that some pitcher has good mechanics and they go down with injury, it's like, all right, we'll eliminate this guy. Clearly he was wrong. On to the next guy. Maybe he knows what good mechanics are. So it seems like we still have gotten nowhere. But the Mets also had Jeremy Hefner, who's going to be undergoing TJ surgery soon. So that's two guys in the last couple of weeks that's going to be undergoing TJ surgery. And we talked about Dice K entering the rotation. That obviously did not start out well. And it's going to be Carlos Torres, who's going to be taking Matt Harvey's place in the rotation. Is there any hope here of value in even like a deep league? Um, you know, I, there are some guys behind those guys that are interesting and Noah Syndergaard and, uh, Rafael Montero, but, um, like I, I might've said last or our last podcast, I, I feel like, um, those guys uh, are running up on innings limits and, and it's hard to depend on a young pitcher in September. So, uh, yeah, Carlos Torres is probably the best of the bunch. Uh, and there is something there that is a little bit more interesting than Daisuke. I mean, He's got a, not not really hard to say. I, I yeah. <laughs> damning with faint praise, but uh, I mean he has a above average whiff rate, and right now he has good control. But over the course of his career, he's had uh, I would say bad control uh, more often than good control, and uh, some here and there uh, bouts with homeritis, probably because his uh, his uh, fastball is around ninety, and he throws his eighty eight uh, mile an hour cutter more often than his fastball. Um, so he's basically throwing 88, um, with a curveball, And, um, I have a feeling that, you know, there, he, he's the kind of guy that would have some Homer problems in, he did in the American league. So in the national league, you know, maybe fewer homers, uh, maybe the good control can stick. Maybe he won't do what he's doing, but maybe he can do mid threes instead of mid fours. ERA. You know what? I have an idea. So you've been getting quite the the lessons on pitch grips and pitching from A.J. Burnett, Kyle Loesch, Luke Gregerson, and others. Is it time to take what you've learned to the mound and try your craft as a pitcher? Maybe give the Mets a call? <laughs> I got fresh ligaments, man. I got fresh ligaments. Yeah, you know you know what? I, I have a feeling that you might be more productive than Dice K. Matsuzaka. <laughs> wow. I have to work on that knuckler. That's about the only chance I'd ever have. <laughs> All right, let's move along to Zach Granke, who I just finished a little Twitter conversation with Richard Migliorisi, whose name I hope I pronounced correctly, and Landon Jones, basically talking about the fact that he's essentially scrapped his slider in favor of his cutter several games after returning from his fractured collarbone. And uh, Dan Brooks from Brooks Baseball got involved because I thought initially that maybe it was just a pitch classification error. But it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like this is a conscious decision. He had elbow inflammation during the spring. And and so now he's not using basically the best pitch that he's had that made him granky to begin with. And yet his ERA is sub three and he's having another excellent year. So what's going on here? Um, yeah. You know, it's not necessarily a pitch classification issue um, every time. So, yeah, I can see how this might actually be a situation. And and, and uh, Richard's been talking about this all years to his credit. He he writes over at the Fantasy Fix, and that's uh, a, we're we're friendly with that site. Um, 
And uh, and uh, so I've been aware of this. You know, Richard's been talking with me about it. And I just I'm not sure how big of a deal it is just because if you look at the outcomes for the pitches, they're uh, very similar. Um, they get uh, almost exactly the same uh, whiff rate. Oh, actually, the slider gets a better whiff rate, but uh, the cutter gets a little bit better of a, of a uh, ground ball rate. It's probably more worrisome. Um, it's probably more worrisome if if it means something else. I mean, we we know that um, we know that, uh, that that he had the broken collarbone. He came back really quickly, and, and so on and so forth. So. Um, we know that there's some slight injury risk there, and and he was a bit of a heavy heavy slider use, user before. Um, so uh, you know, there's maybe you know maybe he's been doing some damage to his elbow. And if he changed from the slider to the cutter, maybe that means he's he's hurting still. That would be more worrisome to me than the actual pitch, the difference in the two pitches. Or or he just switched up the repertoire for preventative measures. So. Because, I mean, he had the elbow inflammation in spring, and so the thought was, all right, I don't want to make things worse and get to the point where TJ surgery is in my future. I'm just going to stop with the slider, which would make sense, except that he opened the season throwing his slider like normal. Then he went down with the collarbone. When he came back, the slider was done. So I'm wondering if that was the explanation, why would he open the season throwing his slider like normal and not switch until after the collarbone? I guess maybe the two combined was enough for him to be like, all right, done with the slider. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I mean, the slider has uh, more of a vertical drop than the cutter. So, um, you know, it probably, you know, he probably does have more of a little flick on the end. And, and if his, if he's feeling it, if he's feeling it in the elbow, um, I yeah, I think this definitely does something bad to Granke's, um keeper status. Because, you know, a change like that, away from a, a strong pitch like that, um, I think it does say that he's probably hurting somewhere. He feels it um, when he throws the slider. So, uh, you know, I don't uh, I don't necessarily know. That, I mean, we're, we're all pitching with borrowed time. And I had, I had, you know, crying for half of my 12 fantasy teams because I have Matt Harvey on, on six teams. Um, so, you know, this could happen at any time, even without these sort of, uh, markers, but, you know, your trade deadline's gone. You're banking on Granky. I just wouldn't keep him if you, if you have the choice. You said you have Harvey in six leagues. Well, this is the perfect opportunity to try out for the Mets, get signed, and then pick yourself up to replace <laughs> Harvey in your fantasy leagues. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a dream. So, or I mean, my son, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, so the other concern with Granke is that since 2007, his fastball velocity has essentially declined every single year. And he actually, he opened the year with a velocity decline this year, but it has improved recently. He did go through a four or five start stretch where he was back throwing 93-94, but then that's dropped back again to the 92, low 92, mid 92 range. But that's back to where he was last year and the year before, so that's good. Because before the collarbone injury, he was throwing 90-91. And, and so that was a big concern. And you, and you had to assume that that was related to the elbow in in spring. But aside from the pitch mix, the velocity I don't think is really a concern anymore. And, uh, you know, he's as good as ever. I, the first strike percentage is way down, though, so that's a concern. 
But I mean, yeah, and just in general, the shape of his velocity chart isn't that exciting. I mean, the fact that it was so low and then it went up and now it's going down again, it's, it's a little, little iffy. And also, um, it is interesting, just, to, just wanted to note that we basically right now are in peak velocity. Um, that's supposedly uh, from Mike Fast's uh, legendary old piece. Uh, I think it's called Lose a Tick, Gain a Tick. Um, he talks about uh, basically the last week in August being the peak velocity season. Yeah, usually pitchers gain velocity ever so slightly each month and then kind of level off by the end of the year. And we're not exactly seeing that with Granky though, because, I mean, his chart, like you mentioned, it basically peaked a couple of starts ago and then it's been in decline again. So you wonder what's going on there. But, uh, yeah, like I, like I said, I think that we've, I think we've got it. You know, we, you know, there's not much you can do uh, about about Granky right now. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a few leagues where the trade deadline is this week. But what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to try and trade Granky for a lesser pitcher? No, no. I mean, I, I don't think there's any sense in trading Granky. Although, I mean, if you look at his ERA Sierra discrepancy, and, and this is something you never see with Granky because he's basically the poster boy for the last couple of years of underperforming most years he underperforms his ERA estimators. He always has a high BABIP or a low strand rate or, or something's going on. And this year his ERA is a full run below his Sierra. So it seems like he's been a bit lucky. But you're right, you can't really trade him. I mean he's still good ballpark, good league, good team, and I, he's still a good pitcher. So even if he regresses, I mean Steamer is still projecting a three forty six ERA the rest of the way. How much better can you get than that? Anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, unless you wanted to like pretend you were trading for depth and and get two or three pitchers that are a little bit lesser and even out your uh, your rotation or something. That, I mean, that that could be defensible. You know, one thing to say about his bad, uh, you know, this came up in the Kershaw for Cy Young argument, which is now over since Harvey's uh, over. <laughs> um, is uh, that uh, apparently the Dodgers defense is good this year and. I don't really understand how that could be uh, because uh, Hanley Ramirez is playing shortstop for them, and um, and you know Puig has his problems in the outfield, and Ethier's been playing center for them. I don't really understand how their defensive numbers are, are any good. So yeah, and Kemp is uh, good defensively, and he's been out the majority of the year. So this is that. So that's a little weird that his BABIP is low and that the team team UZR stats are good and stuff like that. I, yeah, I, I wonder. It seems like there would be less of a fluke if you go on the team level, you know, because you're 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 the sample size is big. Yeah, you're aggregating all of the chances of the entire team, so it seems like there wouldn't be as many flukes. But um, in some way, I don't know if I believe the Dodgers' defensive numbers. All right, let's move along to some optimism in Seattle and uh, Aaron Harang finally DFA'd. And, and now word is that Taiwan Walker, top pitching prospect, is a candidate to start on Friday. Now, I would assume that even if he doesn't get called up to start Friday, he's got to be called up at some point when rosters expand in September, and he will get his cup of coffee and get a couple of starts. So he, he just turned 21 a couple of weeks ago. What are your expectations of him this year? Do you think he's going to get the call up on Friday? And if not, I mean, what can we expect from him in September and I guess in the future in the long term? Um, you know, he's just like I said earlier, he's another guy who's, who can't, they can't squeeze too many more innings out of, um, 
I don't know if he pitched in 2012 in the Fall League, uh, but I doubt it because they don't actually send a lot of pitchers to the Fall League, uh, starting pitchers like of his caliber. It's more of a hitter's league. So if he did, he, he pitched 126 innings last year, and he's coming up on 140 this year. So uh, you could really – they could stop him any time in the next 10 to 20 innings. Um, so I, I don't think that there's a ton of innings left in there. Um, for this year, but maybe they want to push him so they can do a full workload next year, which would mean that they'd want to get him to like 160, uh, maybe 165. So that would be another 25 innings. You could maybe get three or four starts out of him. And he, he's exciting. He's got a great strikeout rate in the minor leagues, um, uh, a good curveball, a uh, good fastball. Um, some years he's had better control. But uh, there were some reports from our from our team in spring training that he's, you know, going back and forth between a regular curveball and a spike curveball. Um, so uh, that might have something to do with his his uh, different uh, walk rate this year. Um, and it you know, he has a tiny tiny bit of platoon splits, um, which could come from a spike curve versus a regular curve. But I, in general, I'd say I'd be really excited about him if he had more innings left. In him. Don't you think his control issues are related to the fact that he just wants to li- live up to his last name, Walker? <laughs> he needs to trade last names with Outman. <laughs> Isn't it unfortunate that your last name is Outman, and yet that's not something that you're very good at? <laughs> <laughs> well, Grant Balfour always had problems. <laughs> uh, gotta love these names. I, I, Taiwan Walker, that's an awesome name. I mean, the fact is, he's not Taiwanese. He's not Asian, and yet his name is Taiwan, although not spelled obviously the same way. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder what the story is behind that one. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he's got exciting strikeout potential. I, I think he peaks. I was just reading the scouting report. Uh, I think it was Mike Newman's scouting report in the preseason. I think it was during spring training, and said he was hitting 96. So I, I would assume that he hits the mid to upper 90s with his fastball, which is always the most intriguing thing I would think about a pitching prospect. But the, obviously the walks are the concern right now, and, and we don't know how many innings he's going to get. So I don't know. I don't think he's somebody that is going to have immediate success in the majors. He's got to uh, improve that control. I mean, he, he's not going to be a Shelby Miller or Jose Fernandez or Matt Harvey. Maybe more like a, a Zach Wheeler would be a good comp, somebody who still needs to get his control in order but clearly has the strikeout stuff to have good outings here and there. Yeah, uh, you know what? I, I it's I'm just on my mind because I talked to AJ Burnett and you know he he doesn't throw a knuckle curve but uh, he throws a spike curve and he and he might have two curveballs because he used to have a traditional curve so maybe he's throwing two curveballs which uh, is something Burnett does. There could be some Burnett in him. He's got gas um, and undetermined control and you know Burnett uh, had some great years at the beginning but he also had some tough years at the beginning so. Um, yeah, Burnett. I, I could see Burnett uh, being a comp. Uh, Wheeler's, you know, primary pitch is, this, is a slider, and he's got a great change. So I think he has more pitches than Walker, um, and he also had way worse walk rates. But uh, uh, I just wanted to uh, – we should have a, a noise for this. We have a breaking news, a breaking news button. Hit the breaking news button. Breaking news now. <laughs> John Buck and Marlon Bird are traded to the Pirates. Whoa, really? John Buck, but they have Russell Martin, Tony Sanchez. All right, going to Roto World now. Wow, 
are they are the Mets getting any players back or? Uh, oh, is I it Lambo? Is it Lambo? No. I'm, well, when I say there goes Andrew Lambo, is there goes oh. the playing time? Unless yeah, yeah, there goes. Trade. Yeah, there goes there goes uh, there definitely goes Andrew Lambo's playing time. Marlon Byrd will be the the probably the everyday right fielder and maybe you know, every day the rest of the season, even when Snyder comes back, because, you know, the, the group there was so underwhelming. So, you know, Buck's just a, a backup anyway. But uh, Marlon Bird uh, stays about the same, and, and Snyder, Lambeau, Tabata, all those guys take a, a big dunk. Uh, I, I mean, I'm looking at the news right now. It doesn't seem like there's any word on what the Mets are getting in return. Yeah, I, yeah. They, I wonder what they're – they got to – you know, the Pirates have decent depth, Um but it has to be somebody that can clear waivers, or it'll just be a player to be named later. Uh, someone's saying here, uh, Dilson Herrera. I've never heard of him. Dilson? Dilson. Speaking of... I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. <laughs> How do you spell this name? i got to look him up. D-I-L-S-O-N. D-I-L-S-O-N. Dilson. How, how else? Dilson Herrera. Dilson. There's been a bunch of Dilsons, according to fan graphs. Uh, all right. Dilson Herrera, second base, third base. And some someone called him a shortstop, but uh, if he's already listed in our database, the second base, third base, that's not a good sign. Player to be named later can actually be um, player to be named later could, could be interesting. And I'm seeing a couple prospect guys saying that Dilson is uh, not a bad get. So what what do the stats say for him? Well, Mark Hewlett in the preseason ranked him number twelve in the Pirate system, and second base, third base. Uh, I mean, obviously, third base at all. You said he is a shortstop. Someone listed him as a shortstop uh, announcing the trade. Well, I mean, that's a positive considering they don't really have one now. I mean, Ruben Tejada, I can't imagine him being their future shortstop, and obviously, Omar Quintanilla is not. So, uh, you know, he's only gone up to to single A. Before that, he put up decent power. I, he he had some decent power in single A as well. Has some speed. Not a great walk rate. Uh, his strikeout rate has increased at every level. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the scouting report is, but statistically he doesn't look like anything exciting. But, again, it's only single A, so anything can happen from now. Yeah, I mean, it's shot in the dark. And, uh, you know, a shot in the dark is worth uh, two f- expiring free agents. Yeah, he's so. only 19, though. So, And uh, his name is Dilson, so... I, that's a positive. I mean, I, I would love to hear Gary. And it's not it's not low A. It's A ball. So I mean, yeah. They they probably I doubt they'll throw him into Double A right away. But um, you know that means he'll be in Double A next year. Um, and once you hit Double A, and if, and if he improves that strikeout rate at all, he's a candidate for call up next year. Right. And again, I, I can't stress enough how important the fact is his name is Dilson. And anytime you, you bring in interesting names into the organization, exciting times, and it'll give us more to talk and laugh about. So that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think uh, I, I, was a, I was an advocate for trading Marlon Bird just because, you know, I, I thought that they could they can. I think what probably happened was the Pirates said, "No, we're not going to give you Dilson Herrera before the trade deadline." And then maybe the Cardinals won a couple games. They're tied, um, and maybe the the Mets moved a little bit on the uh, player to be named later. So um, we never know the full story on these things. But uh, I always thought that uh, I'd rather 
I'd rather because we're not going to offer Marlon. The Mets are not going to offer Marlon Bird uh, a fourteen million dollar qualifying offer. Uh, that would be insanity. So um, that means no draft pick for Marlon Bird. The old regime may have, but I think the new one. <laughs> fourteen times three. <clears throat> yeah, and I'm kind of curious to see who they get back, and then what happens in the Mets outfield. Uh, I mean, they already said that Duda is not going to be playing the outfield, so. I don't know who they have Davis in the outfield. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anything that guarantees him at bats, I'm good with. I don't know. Uh, there, there's like a, there's an interesting crew. I guess you know Ligaris has already pretty much become the 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 starting center fielder, um, and uh, he's yep. more of a real life player than a fantasy player because he's got too many strikeouts, not enough walks, and iffy power. So I don't know that Ligaris. Really benefits from this, um, you know. And the other guys that they have, you know, Den Decker is a is a, a in, down in the minors is a is a he's a defense first guy. Um, you know, they they have a problem in the outfield, and I think you know they supposedly have thirty million or so to, to spend this offseason. I think they're probably going to spend it on outfielders. So uh, I don't I don't see that you know Nimmo or any of those guys. I don't think they're ready unless they try out. Uh, I don't know if Corey Vaughn is healthy. Uh, I think he's Greg Vaughn's kid. Um, he's he's kind of all or nothing with some power. I don't know. Well, um, they might see you might see him. Well, if nothing else, the Mets have now become the ultimate team to stream starting pitchers against. Because <laughs> now without Marlon Byrd, <laughs> Ike Davis is essentially their only power hitter, and Ike Davis obviously is not somebody that yet has reestablished himself as a good hitter. So. That's a pretty good team to automatically start every single pitcher against. Yeah, I mean it's true. I, you know, my uh, tout, tout star Travis Darno is uh, is undetermined. I guess you know they, there's always these people who say try Wilmer Flores in the outfield, and he he certainly has some bat to him, but um, he's pretty unathletic. So I don't know. Maybe they'll just try him in the outfield just to see if he can do it, but. Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily going to happen. All right, let's move along to a veteran in Philadelphia whose time as a fantasy star and even you know a top 10 guy at the position might be over. And, of course, I'm talking about Jimmy Rollins. And he appeared in my article yesterday as uh, one of the largest declines in isolated slugging. He ranked third. He's got five home runs this year after hitting 23 last year. A sub-100 isolated slugging, which is like Juan Pierre Gerard Dyson territory. And he is 33, 34, 34 years old right now. He'll be 35 next year. Is he basically done being uh, you know, one of the top fantasy shortstops in baseball? Or do you think maybe this is just a down year and he'll rebound next year? Uh, you know... Looking at his ISOs, um, you you could be forgiven for thinking that you know there was still some pop in the bat and that he the 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 slow descent into mediocrity that he's that he's on um, you know wasn't necessarily uh, irreversible. But you know you look at his batted ball uh, distances, it's pretty clear. I mean he's been on a seven year uh, decline in those stats. The distance has gone from. You know, basically the low 300s and, and and power hitting territory when 
where he was um, he was hitting uh, 30 home runs, you know, a long time ago. Uh, and if you just watch, just follow that line down, it just goes down to about 265 or 270 right now, and it's just a it's just a real obvious slow descent. So I think that the power, you know, it's it's always hard with power because you could hit two or three home runs in a week and look better, but I think the power is gone. Yeah, I just brought up his batter ball distance as you were mentioning it. It's actually worse than you were mentioning. He's at 256 feet. That ranks 276th out of 294 batters on this leaderboard. That's <laughs> in the territory with Jose Iglesias, David Lowe, Pete Cosma, J.B. Shuck, Jeff Kepinger, Alcides Escobar, Rajay Davis, guys that you know have zero power. It's not a place that he's used to being in. And, and when you see such a dramatic decline, the first question, oh, is he playing injured? But then when you also look at his age, oh, and this is also about 20 feet less than last year. When you also combine that with his age, then the question shifts away from playing through injury to, wait, maybe it's just aging effects and this is his collapse year and he's done. Because, I mean, we've seen this with numerous hitters in their mid-30s. They just collapse and then they're just out of baseball. So that could very well be happening here. And then if you also look at his speed, first year in his career, his speed has been below 5.8. It's at 4.5 right now. Just another uh, example of just old age, just getting the best of him, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, he was kind of miscast. I was, you know, he did have power at his peak. Uh, but, you know, age comes for everyone. And, uh, he, you know, it's nice that he's still stealing. He, he might be uh, an interesting uh, acquisition, actually, for a deep league team, you know, 15-team MI kind of thing, where all you need is a guy who's going to stay in the lineup um, and, you know, maybe steal you 20 to 25 bases in a full year. I mean, he, he, he still exists, and I don't think he's going away. Yeah, it's uh, funny because even if you looked at a – Let's say next year, I think a reasonable projection at this point might be 10 home runs, 15 steals, assuming that at his age, maybe he's going to slow down and steals and you want to be conservative. Even at 10-15, hitting toward the top of the lineup, playing every day, has its value. And now his RBI and run numbers kind of suck this year because the Phillies offense has been awful, but you have to assume it's going to be a little better next year. So 10-15 is still not worthless. So you're right. He has some sneaky value still, and he's not completely done. Yeah, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a crazy, uh, twenty team league where you know Chris Bar- Bryant, the um, the uh, number two pick in the draft, has been owned for three years. Wow. You know, that's the kind of league where I just I, I feel like going against the grain because I don't know those I don't know those scouts and I I hate I hate the whole. I mean, I I can't I can't be into you know a ball sixteen year olds and stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 think I might, you know, maybe I'll try to trade for Rollins in the off season as a final bench piece, you know, backup MI in that league. I think I might do it. All right. So as we always say, injuries, trades always open up opportunities. And that's exactly the case for Ava Sayil Garcia, who the White Sox had acquired from the Tigers in a three team swap that involved Jake Peavy at the trade deadline. And, and now he's playing every day. And he was picked up in both our Tower Wars League as well as my Labor League. So clearly 
fantasy owners are looking at him thinking that he might be somebody who provides an offensive boost the rest of the season. I don't know where that offensive boost is going to come from, but maybe you do, because I don't see anything here that excites me. Um, well, you know, actually, uh, one... Well, no, eh, yeah, yeah I, I can't do it. Hey, he looks uh, like Miguel Cabrera, and, and that's the thing, because they always talk about his similarities to Miguel Cabrera, but just because you look like a player doesn't mean you're going to play like him. Yeah, yeah, and... You know, yeah, right. And then they, they, a lot of people, a lot of scouts are saying that he's wiry, strong, and he, he's got power potential. Uh, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I guess he could. If, if the scouts say it, it, there's that chance that it's true. But if you just look at what he's doing right now, he's hitting the ball on the ground 60% of the time, does not have exciting uh, batted ball distance, pushes the ball uh, more than he pulls the ball. So he's, he's a very, very oppo hitter. It's the kind of package that could actually lead to a decent batting average, despite you know if he strikeout rates for him, uh, because you know if you if you spray the ball to all fields and you hit a lot of ground balls, you you know you can find holes, have a nice babbit. But um, it's not something I depend on, especially since I don't see another skill. Like I don't see a lot of power, I don't see a lot of walks, I don't see any speed. So I don't I don't really get what's going on there. Yeah, his minor league track record, he's had sky-high BABIPs. And and I always say in my articles that minor league BABIP does translate well to the majors. Not exactly, because minor league BABIPs are higher. But if you have a well-above-average BABIP relative to the league in the minors, you'll probably have an above-average BABIP in the majors. So maybe 380 in the minors, you'll be at 340 in the majors. And, and so in that sense, I think it translates. And so it seems like Garcia is going to be a high BABIP guy in the majors. The crazy thing is, is he's a big guy. I mean, his Fangraphs page lists him at 6'4", 240. And yet you go back to his 2012, 2011, and 2010 seasons, and he stole double-digit bases. You would never expect that from that type of frame. I mean, that's like Carlos Lee kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stop stealing, I, though. That, that could like uh, that could suggest that he's athletic, uh, um, and and so therefore that might, you know, go a little bit towards uh, the scouts' claim that there's some power potential there. I mean, the size, the, you know. But I think that a lot of times, you know, I'm not I'm not anti-scout at all. Scouts know a lot of things, but I think when um, sometimes scouts uh, love a guy too much is when uh, they're dreaming on a body type. And uh, I could see, you know, a, a scout seeing, you know, 6'4", 240 guy, uh, you know, with okay contact rates in the minor leagues and league average power and saying, okay, you know, he's got league average power now, but, you know, when he starts lifting or whatever. But, you know, he's been in the minor leagues since 2009 and he hasn't uh, put up a stretch with, you know, a long stretch with a better than league average power yet, really. Yeah, so, I mean, it's one of those things, we'll believe it when we see it. I mean, sure, you can dream of good power in the future, but until he starts actually showing good power, then I'm just going to assume it's never going to come. And so without the power, and and given his size, you can't possibly imagine that he's going to start stealing bases in the majors. Then it really comes down to maybe a, a, a decent batting average uh, supported by a high Babbitt. And that's really it. So uh, he doesn't look like. Yeah, it, you know, if he didn't have, if he had uh, no buzz, and this was just a guy on the Marlins that got called up for injury concerns, and 
You know, no one really thought anything was going to happen with him. You know, I could say maybe listen to the scouts, maybe pick, uh, maybe pick up, uh, you know, somebody, uh, pick him up and, and just stash him on your bench in your deep dynasty or whatever. But this is a guy now that has that has buzz, you know, and people are interested in him. So that means you got to pay for him. That means you got to pay based on scouts you don't know. Uh, talking about his power potential, so that that just that that makes me uh, that sounds like risk to me. Yeah, I mean, th- there's one positive here. He is in a better ballpark for home run power. Uh, last year, the U.S. Cellular Field a 116 home run park factor for right-handed batters. Tiger Stadium or Comerica Park a 102 park factor. And, and that's significant. I mean, White Sox have the best right-handed home run park in all of baseball. So at least he does move to a much better offensive environment for him. So maybe that will help speed up his, uh, his power fight. Uh, uh, that's basically the only positive I can find. But other than that, I think he's going to be we, worthless. We tried. We do. All right. Well, that's a wrap, folks. So join us again on Thursday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Eno Saris, uh, Mike Podhorzer, thanks for tuning in.